Josh Chin is the Deputy Bureau Chief in China for The Wall Street Journal. Lisa Lin covers data use and privacy for The Wall Street Journal from Singapore. Together, Lisa and Josh are the authors of Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. They join me today to talk about that book. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lisa, Josh, it is great to have you on Intelligence Matters. Welcome. Thank you. It's a real, real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. So you guys are the authors of a terrific book. It's called Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to launch a new era of social control. Congratulations on the book. I read it from cover to cover. I found it interesting. I found it insightful. I found it readable and more than a bit scary. I'd like to start by asking you guys how you define a surveillance state, right? How do you think about it in terms of a definition? Yeah, so, you know, I think... um... The, the way we thought about a, a surveillance state and is a state in which governance, the, the sort of act of, of managing society is sort of driven by and and really indivisible from advanced surveillance technologies where the, you know, and you see this really clearly in China where the, the, the Communist Party there has sort of melded its its, its traditional approach to, to governing and controlling China with cutting edge technologies like facial recognition, techniques like data mining, in order to sort of uh, create a kind of more nimble form of authoritarianism. It's interesting that you talk about, you know, advanced surveillance technologies, because one of the questions I wanted to ask is, is how does surveillance in China today compare to, you know, old Mao style surveillance, right, where neighbor was spying on neighbor? Um, How do you think about that? Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's interesting when we, when we started looking into this is, you know, w- one of the things we discovered was that, you know, really, I mean, just to a certain degree, all states are surveillance states going back to the, the beginning of states, right? In the sense that yeah. any, anyone who's trying to govern a large number of people needs to have information about those people in order to govern them, right? There's a, a James C. Scott sort of famously described this as, as rendering societies legible, right? So this has been, you know, all the way back to the Romans, you know, conducting surveys so they knew who to tax and who to, who to draft for, for the Roman legion. You know, it's, it's, it's as old as time, basically. But, right, you right. know, I think in the 20th century, what you started to see with Mao and with other sort of totalitarian leaders was this sort of utopian idea 
right? This idea that you could collect enough enough information to to sort of mold society in a scientific in a scientifically ideal way, right? You know, I think the difference between what Mao was sort of aiming for and the, and the types of information he was collecting and what you see now is is mostly a difference in sort of volume and value of data collected, right? Like Mao, obviously, he was he was limited to sort of human data collection, so he had right, right. a lot of human spies. He had this vast sort of domestic spying network, hundreds of thousands of people. And of course, it was encouraging other people to regular people to inform on each other and that sort of thing. And the Communist Party now, I mean, they still do some of that, but they have these other just vastly more powerful tools that are so much more efficient at collecting and, and analyzing information. And so they just have the ability to sort of consider this utopian project of engineering society in a way that Mao never actually really could. I guess to add on to that, you know, the intent... Uh, for China to surveil its citizens was always there. But what we really saw in the last kind of 10 to 15 years was the ability because there's been huge advances in technology. For example, the advent of deep learning and the realization that you had these fast processing chips that could crunch that data in a very efficient manner. So crunch down large amounts of data and draw analysis from that data as per what Josh mentioned, that really actually spurred the development of China's modern day surveillance state. Okay, guys, what are the key components of the surveillance system in China? How do you think about that? So I would probably characterize, um, to me, the way China's surveillance state stands out uh, is in two areas. One is the breadth of the data collection. Uh, and when we talk about the breadth of the data collection, I refer you to the amount of like touch points where the Chinese government can t can actually extract data from its citizens. So the Chinese government has access to probably about 400 million cameras across the country. And I think the difference between China and many other uh, countries is that all these cameras are largely state-owned. Uh, unlike in the U.S. where you have a ton of Amazon Ring cameras that are privately owned, you know, a lot of the surveillance cameras that you see on the street in China are owned by government agencies and largely by the Chinese police. And beyond access to that, those 400 million cameras, you, the Chinese government still has access to about a billion smartphones uh, that the Chinese citizens use. And that's because there are a series of um, national security and intelligence laws that were put in place in China over the last decade that actually allowed the Chinese government to have access to a lot of the information that Chinese tech companies collect. Uh, and the difference in China versus other countries is that a lot of citizens are largely reliant on Chinese apps, and in particular, this one app called WeChat, which is made by and, and run by a company called Tencent. And on this app, WeChat, it kind of functions quite similarly to a mesh of, you know, a Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, a Google, and Amazon. And, and on top of that, you know, you layer on mobile payments. So the Chinese government, through this app, has the ability to figure out what its citizens are searching online, what they're saying online, what they're buying online, and where they're traveling. So there are a lot of these touch points uh, in which the Chinese government could actually extract data from its citizens to just understand what's going on on the ground. And add to that, you know, mobile phone trackers. And right now, you know, right over the last two years of COVID, we've definitely seen the Chinese government 
improve in its ability to collect data on where your smartphone has been. So, for example, a lot of the COVID health codes that China has been using over the last two to three years, which have been tracking your position and where you've been going in the last two weeks just to ascertain if you're a health risk, that's an additional layer uh, of data that the Chinese government now has like the ability to collect on all its citizens in real time. China really stands out for the breadth of the data collection and its ambition. So its ambition really is the second reason why we see China as such a standout. Now, undoubtedly, China is probably the only country out there that hopes to use surveillance to create this techno-utopian state. And as we mentioned in our research and, and in the book, you know, China has this ambition to use the data collected to analyze any future threats to its governance and to identify these threats quickly and do something about it to create some sort of an alternative model to what democracy could offer. Because as a country itself, an authoritarian country does not have the same democratic institutions that you know, developed Western countries do. So Lisa, that's a tremendous amount of data you just talked about, right? And then earlier you talked about the use of AI, machine learning, right, to, to do something with that data, right, to, that would allow the Chinese government to take actions that they think are necessary to protect the state. Can you talk a little bit more, guys, about how they actually use AI, how they use machine learning? I think that would be insightful. I think probably the, the most vivid example in China, and it's one that, that listeners of this, of this podcast probably have, have heard of, is, is Xinjiang. Uh, which is a, a remote region far northwestern China on, on the doorstep of Central Asia. And uh, Xinjiang stands out because it, it's home to a, a large population of Turkic Muslims, including the Uyghurs, who have always uh, chafed at, at Communist Party and at Han Chinese rule. And so there's always been a lot of, of conflict out there. And in recent years, the, the Communist Party has, their, their solution to that has been to roll out what I think is probably the, the closest thing we've ever gotten to a, a sort of truly dystopian, you know, sort of Orwellian uh, yeah. surveillance state, right? And, and what they've done is they've gone out and, and, you know, blanketed the entire region. I mean, it's a twice the size of Texas. It's a massive place. Uh, but they've blanketed the entire region in cameras and microphones, other sorts of sensors, security gates, to the point where if you're a, a Uyghur moving around in, in Xinjiang, outside or even inside your home, basically everything you're doing is, is capable of being, of being recorded and analyzed in, in real time. And so all these sensors feed this data into a centralized data platform. It was actually built by a, um, a defense contractor uh, and it's sort of modeled on on systems that the the U.S. military uses to coordinate complicated joint operations like uh, like counterinsurgency operations, and so that all this data gets sucked into the centralized platform, and then they use it there. Uh, so these cameras have uh, the sensors themselves have artificial intelligence built into them. You know, so the cameras can recognize people's faces, they can recognize people's voices, that sort of thing, and then all this data gets analyzed on this platform. In, in ways that it's, it's a bit of a black box. We don't know exactly how they calculate it, but they use this data to categorize people according to the level of threat the Communist Party perceives in them. So, you know, there, there, there's three categories. In one system that we looked at, there were three categories, unsafe, safe, and, and average. For people who were deemed unsafe, and that means, you know, they may have filled up their gasoline, 
they may have filled up their car with gasoline one too many times, or they may have they may have a digital Quran on their phone, or they may be friends with the wrong people, or whatever sort of biographical markers the Communist Party is using. The people who are who have those markers who are seen as unsafe for a long time were being shipped off to a sort of gulag of re-education centers, basically. Yeah. So it, it's your discussion of Xinjiang in the book that that really makes this whole thing chilling. But there's a flip side to the coin, right? You tell another story about how these tools could actually be used for good. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. So Josh did a ton of the reporting in Xinjiang. And, and on my part, you know, I traveled to a lot of these wealthy Han Chinese cities that were located on the east coast of China. And in those wealthy cities, what you saw were the same systems, often built by the same manufacturers as well, that were used for oppression but in Xinjiang, were used to make city governance a lot more efficient. So, for example, you know, the facial recognition that would possibly identify a security threat in Xinjiang would be used by the Chinese police to identify buckets of society that they deemed as people that could cause you know, national instability or some harm. So people that the Chinese police would use facial recognition in the wealthier Chinese cities to identify would be ex-convicts, for example, or ex-convicts that were just released and they wanted to monitor just to make sure that they were settling back into society much better. And then other people that they would use these facial recognition systems and CCTV cameras to identify would be fugitives on the run or people that they knew were notorious drug pushers. So all these are kind of people that you really, as a normal, regular person, wouldn't be wanting to walk alongside on the street with. And it wasn't just identifying like people of interest as well. These same sensors that were sucking up video and, you know, car counts or number of people counts were used to identify traffic accidents really quickly to get first responders to the scene, for example. And we pull out city in East China called Hangzhou. And Hangzhou might not ring a bell to most of your listeners, but the companies that are headquartered in Hangzhou probably would. So a company like Alibaba, Mm -hmm. for example, is headquartered in Hangzhou. And a company like Hikvision, which is the world's largest maker of CCTV cameras, they're also headquartered in Hangzhou. So for for these reasons, you know, the Hangzhou government just has tended to really try and lean towards making Hangzhou a smart city in the digital sense. Um, They've been very embracing of using technology to run the city and using these companies as like partners. Hangzhou used to be the fifth most congested city in China, probably about two or three years ago. What the city government did was to put in place a system of CCTV cameras and sensors that were absorbing how many cars were on the street and using that to optimize traffic lights. So in in periods of um, peak traffic, the traffic lights would stay green for cars a lot longer. Uh, And that kind of helped Hangzhou drop from fifth most congested to 57th most congested city in a matter of a couple of years. For a reporter that had been traveling in the region so frequently, I often went to Hangzhou for work. And if you were stuck in a Hangzhou jam, you would be stuck for 40 minutes and you'd be moving maybe a mile just because the Hangzhou road network was not established and the subway system was very immature. And yet population and car population in particular probably doubled or tripled. 
So, you know, it was like small things like these that the city government um, had been using these surveillance systems to help just make life more frictionless. And I think the one example that really stood out to us in our research and reporting was when we found a guy whose mother had fallen into a river. Uh, and he, they lived on the outskirts of Hangzhou City, but in that area, the Hangzhou government was still starting to put, put in place these systems. His mom had fallen into the river and he was really lucky and they were very lucky because a neighbor was around the corner and fished her out, but she still was in a condition where she needed medical help. So the nearest hospital had sent an ambulance over to get her. And once she was in the ambulance, the driver had turned on this system that allowed traffic lights and sensors to recognize its license plate. So, you know, the same sort of computer vision that's used in facial recognition in Xinjiang was used here to recognize the license plate of the ambulance and to turn all the traffic lights green from the point of picking her up to the hospital. So yeah. that shaved off half the time that it needed for her to get to hospital and to get treatment and to drain out her lungs. So in such a life and death situation, it really makes you wonder if such surveillance systems actually might have a use. Uh, and in the case of Hangzhou, a lot of people that we spoke to just felt like the positive externalities of having such a system outweighed any of like the data collection, the more sinister data collection kind of outcomes. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Lisa and Josh. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. So guys, given that, right, in Han, China, is there a resistance in general to the surveillance state or is there an acceptance of it? Well, you know, this is this is actually one of the the most fascinating aspects of doing all of this work, and it's and I think it's our understanding of, of change the most in in looking at this, right? And I think you start off, we started off like a lot of people, I think, do with the assumption in China that privacy actually doesn't matter that much, and and in fact, if you look at the sort of official Chinese government approved dictionary, the word for privacy uh, doesn't appear there until the late '90s, so it is a, a relatively new concept. And I should say, you know, I think uh, at least up until recently, a, a large number of people in China, the vast majority of them probably just didn't really have the luxury to be thinking about things like privacy. They're more, you know, there's more concern with, with putting food on the table. But in larger cities, as, as you know, as we sort of did more and more work and talked to more people, we, you know, we realized, you know, in, in bigger cities with more educated populations, you do have 
the beginnings of a, of a sort of privacy movement, right? A sort of understanding of privacy. And you had a, quite a few controversies actually involving big Chinese tech companies. Um, one of them was Baidu, which is the, the Chinese equivalent of Google. Um, and in one instance, the CEO had been at a forum and said, you know, we Chinese tech companies, we have a huge advantage because our customers don't care about what we do with their data. So we can do anything we mm -hmm. want with it. Uh, and that, that spurred a huge backlash. And what was interesting is, is the way that the, the Chinese government handled this was, you know, you would sort of expect them in its country with this really extremely successful and powerful censorship apparatus, you would expect them to just use that to, to quash any talk of privacy. But actually what they, what they did was a little bit of sort of jujitsu, right? Where they sort of, they actually threw their support behind a lot of these controversies and they sort of, uh, you know, they had state media going after Chinese companies for, for mishandling customer data uh, and essentially put themselves on the side of the people and, and kind of defined privacy concerns exclusively in terms of what private companies did. Right. Um, so, so the government use of data has never really, or at least again, not until recently, been been um, scrutinized much in China. Um, and now, and now we've gotten to a, a really, really interesting period, which is, you know, anyone who's been paying attention to the headlines in China knows we recently had nationwide protests against the um, the zero COVID regime that Chinese leader Xi Jinping right. had been promoting. And the, I mean, these were it's hard to overstate how surprising these protests were. I mean, this was the biggest demonstration of, of, of public uh, defiance against the Communist Party since 1989, since the pro-democracy protests back then. And, and a lot of it, at the center of it, was this frustration with the controls that the Communist Party was imposing using its, its, its surveillance technologies. So I think, I think we're at a new moment. It's actually, and I, well, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because I think the, this is one instance in which the Communist Party may have overplayed its hand. One of the things that I learned from the book was that China did not put this advanced surveillance system in place all by itself. It, it had some help, correct? And, and can you talk about that? Sure. So what we found in our research is that uh, the Silicon Valley has been there supporting the development of China's surveillance state right from its incubation. Uh, China's digital surveillance state it's in its current form really only started to take root at the turn of the century. So around year 2000, 2001, you saw the Chinese police a lot more willing to turn to digital technology to gather data. Uh, and when it did so, it ran these huge fairs, large expos in which it invited foreign companies to come down uh, and to ba basically showcase their wares just to allow Chinese police to have a look at what's out there and decide what they wanted to buy. And the companies that turned out uh, at these exhibitions were all either pioneers of Silicon Valley or the who's who of the digital world at that point. So you saw people like Sun Microsystems come down. Uh, you saw Cisco attend the exhibition and showcase what they had to offer. You saw um, the now defunct Canadian company Nortel Networks uh, come down. And there was also Siemens from Germany. And all these big companies were right there at the very first Chinese ex exhibitions trying to sell things such as fingerprint database collection systems or other you know, censorship systems like filters uh, for the great internet firewall. So we definitely saw like Silicon Valley play a very important role in the incubation of the early 
Chinese um, digital surveillance state. Fast forward two decades to present day, what you're seeing is Silicon Valley companies not not just providing systems, they're actually providing components to the surveillance state. So if you think about the hard disk drive industry globally, it's really an oligopoly. Uh, The market share is mostly taken up by American companies such as Western Digital and Seagate. Uh, And these two companies have been known to be selling these hard disk drives to Chinese surveillance companies in large numbers and even optimizing some of the hard disk drives as surveillance hard drives uh, for the Chinese. And and it isn't just like hard disk drives, you need the processing power as well. So chip companies like NVIDIA and Intel, they've been known to sell their GPUs and CPUs, these really high-end chips, uh, to Chinese surveillance companies in order to power the data analysis that goes on on the back end. So if you think about Silicon Valley involvement, it's huge. And not just in components, if you think about the financial aspect of things, a lot of U.S private equity companies and venture capital companies were the first companies to give Chinese surveillance startups like a leg up in the game by funding them. So there are a lot of ways that the West, and in particular the US, has contributed to the development of China's surveillance apparatus. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. I want to switch gears a little bit, guys, and talk about China's export of its surveillance system to other countries The conventional wisdom, as you know, says that China wants to shape the world in its image, right, in its authoritarian image as a surveillance state, and you push back on that notion. Can you talk about that? That view, this view of China sort of wanting to push its 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 system on the rest of the world, I mean, it makes sense, right? The people who have that view, it's 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 not coming out of nowhere, right? And, And and you know, one of the pieces of evidence that people often cite is, is Xi Jinping himself, you know, China's leader, you know, he's talked about how, you know, China wants to make contributions to the, to the sort of human pursuit of better governance systems and that sort of thing, right? And, it, and it's clearly, um, you know, diplomatically, it's spending a lot of capital, a lot of time trying to cultivate relationships around the globe, in some cases, you know, uh, trying to, to co-opt global institutions like the WTO and WHO. But what, what we what we saw when we started looking deep into this, just in, in terms through the lens of exports of surveillance uh, and this this model that they have in particular of this sort of digital authoritarianism, is that it's more complicated, right? So the they are definitely selling this these technologies and these systems and the ideas behind them around the globe. We don't have really great data on this now, but the the most recent number we have from a scholar at the, at the University of Texas named Sheena Greetens, who who dug around and found that. There were at least 80 countries globally in the year 2020 who had imported 
state surveillance systems from China. And those were those ranged from you know authoritarian countries all the way to to Western democracies, you know, local police stations in France and Germany and that sort of thing. One example that we saw sort of in detail was in, in Uganda, right? Which is where, you know, which is one of these countries that sort of it kind of hovers between the United States and China. It maintains relationships with both. You know, it has, it's it's nominally a democracy, but the leader there, Yori Museveni, has won every election going back decades. And there are sort of, of course, allegations of uh, election fraud and, and, and whatnot. China has been cultivating its relationship with, with Museveni for, for many years. And a few years ago, they sold him a sort of state surveillance starter kit, right? And they, you know, they... They flew Ugandan police out to China, to, to, to Beijing, where, they, where the, they were given lessons in how, how these systems are used. And, you know, just like China, um, the Museveni sort of initially said, oh, these systems are for fighting crime, but then, but then quick, quickly used them in, in sort of political ways to, to track his, to track opposition political figures. And so, you know, in some ways, what you saw in Uganda is, is that China is exporting its system. Um, but the way that it was used in Uganda is not the way it's used in China, right? And and that's partly because it can't be. China has these all these advantages that a lot of other countries don't. You know, China has a lot of money. It has an immense, pretty well trained, fairly tech savvy bureaucracy. So you know, it just a lot of countries really can't replicate China's model. And and China, I think, realizes that. But what they're interested in is promoting this idea of governments being able to use these technologies in whatever way they see fit. Right. So the idea is not that they want to copy themselves around the world, but they just want to disrupt the, the sort of existing Western dominated order, which which, you know, which which suggests that these that, you know, state power should be restrained and, and indiv- individual rights protected against invasions of, of, of this kind. Right. They want they want to upset that that conversation and make it OK for governments to, to use these technologies to control societies. I want to ask you guys about the West's response to the rise of. China's surveillance state and how well you think we've responded and are there better approaches out there? That's a great question because in the last couple of months, we've definitely seen governments such as the U.S. take action to stop the flow of the components that I talked about earlier into the Chinese surveillance state. So on October 7th, you saw the White House put out new export sanctions. And with these sanctions, with these regulations, they barred U.S. companies from assisting in the development uh, of China's advanced chip and and semiconductor industry. And that meant if you were a U.S. person or a U.S. company, you couldn't be selling components or you couldn't even be working or helping in any form. You know, U.S. persons were not allowed to help with the development. One of the reasons cited was military. So they didn't want uh, to empower Chinese military by helping with the development of high-end chips. But they also wanted to stop the expansion of the China surveillance state. Uh, and that was one of the reasons cited for these controls. So it definitely seen some steps being taken in recent months. And on how these steps actually play out in China, it's still a big question mark at this right. point. because. Right. As with many export controls, you do see workarounds. And Chinese companies still can get these high-end chips in very small quantities. So when you think about like what governments are doing to stop the flow of either money or technology into the Chinese surveillance state, one company that often keeps coming up is a company called SenseTime. SenseTime yes. really is China's largest AI unicorn. And I would say it was probably one of the startups that 
really made this idea of facial recognition, using facial recognition in solving crimes, really such a such a wide and global idea. So with with SenseTime, what we saw was the U.S. government put one of SenseTime's entities both uh, on the entity list and the trade um, and on the investment blacklist. So if you were a SenseTime's Beijing entity, you couldn't get chips from U- U.S. companies. You were on the entity list. And if you were SenseTime's Hong Kong entity, then you couldn't get any financing uh, from U.S. investors. And SenseTime is this company that had been really funded by you know, people like Fidelity, Qualcomm had a stake in it. So what the U.S. government had essentially tried to do was to restrict the flow of money or chips to sense time. But in reality, because of all these loopholes that I mentioned earlier, it didn't succeed. So with sense time, what we found out was when the company listed last year, uh, 2020, uh, in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, it actually had a statement coming out saying that even though it's it was technically on the entity list, it was only one uh, subsidiary of sense time that was on the entity list. It was its Beijing subsidiary. So its Shanghai subsidiary was free to buy whatever Intel and NVIDIA chips that they needed to power their surveillance systems. See, so the the loophole that I talked about earlier, one of these legal loopholes is something like that. Just putting one subsidiary on the entity list wasn't enough. And SenseTime was also put on a treasury blacklist at the end of 2021, which really barred US investors from investing in it. But what you saw when it went, eventually went to IPO was there was still U.S. money in it. And that was because, and this is according to the company, that was because its Hong Kong entity was on that treasury blacklist. But it was a Cayman Islands entity that was mm-hmm. listed in Hong Kong. So there, there are all these ways that the U.S. has been trying to stop the flow or, or stop its companies and investors from aiding the development of surveillance in China, but really there are some limitations. The other plane on which this conversation exists is, is, is kind of just on the on the level of policy and ideology, actually, right? And and so, you know, the, the real challenge for the US, completely apart from the technological question, is is the appeal of the, of this model, of the Chinese model, right? Which I think is, you know, around the globe, it's, it's very simple, right? The, the Chinese government has this very simple message, which is that these technologies can be used to increase security and, and improve, you know, certain aspects of lives and, uh, you know, in ways that we've never seen before. And they should just be, you know, everyone should be able to use them however they want. And the U.S. doesn't really have a good response to that, right? There is no, there's no sort of coherent Western vision or democratic vision of how these technologies should be deployed. And I think that's, you know, in part in the U.S. it's an issue. The U.S. has always been schizophrenic about the role of technology and and data in society, right? Especially, you know, since the rise of Silicon Valley, because, you know, Silicon Valley companies push this idea that it's the free flow of information that sort of gave rise to innovation in Silicon Valley. And so you can't cut it off, even though there are potentially, you know, bad side effects from having huge amounts of personal data floating around and being exploited by companies and governments. Um, That's just the price you have to pay for innovation, right? That's the sort of U.S. view of things. And and the conversation hasn't really moved significantly beyond that. It has started to move beyond that in other places, in in Europe, for example, in the U.K., where, you know, you do have rules that are are being implemented to, to really restrain some of the more invasive technologies like facial recognition, right? 
Um, and where you have regulators whose job it is to sort of keep an eye on these sorts of things. But those are those are early days. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people feel that until the U.S. gets on board with it, you're really not going to have a, a compelling democratic alternative to the Chinese vision. But we need one. We absolutely need one. The book is Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. The authors are Josh Chin and Lisa Lin. Josh, Lisa, thank you very much for joining us. It was a tremendous pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having us. That was Josh Chin and Lisa Lin. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.